David, a standby of local news this time of year is the story that the shopping mall is really, really busy. <laughs> what I want to know is, what is local news going to do if the shopping mall is vacated because of COVID? I don't, well, I don't know how it is where you're living. I don't, I mean, I know there's different rules in different states. In the great state of New Jersey, or at least I can speak for the Quaker Bridge Mall over here by where I live, it is packed. And it's to pack the point where like, there are moments where we drive by and we say, oh, wouldn't it be nice to go walk around in JC Penney for 30 minutes? Uh, and before we can talk ourselves into it, we look <laughs> and realize that there are more, the, the parking lot is absolutely packed and we just start, you know, speeding in the opposite direction. Uh, I think that probably there will still be stories, at least over here, about the mall being busy, and they'll they'll just feel more like the newscasts from like 28 days later or something than you know the actual the upbeat like everything's fine. I mean, apparently the I mean I, I don't mean to make light of the economic plight of the you know owners of uh, you know the Banana Republic and the Orange Julius, but uh, the mall is packed and it makes me sort of scared. I want every press box listener to note how David, in order to preserve his working class bona fides, said he was going to walk around J.C. Penny rather than Nordstrom or Macy's. That that's where <laughs> David's walking around. <laughs> going to get some of those gold toed socks and those uh, arrow shirts, David. By the way, I'm literally wearing the gold toed socks right now, although I believe they came from a Lands End outlet, and uh, and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no. I, listen, I'll go to all the shops. I think the actual allure of J.C. Penney was that no one would be there. Then we realized somebody might be there. So my move for the local news pivot is pivot to the airport is not busy, right? Because that's their other story this time of year. Like yeah. the airport is packed. What do we? There's delays. It's crazy out there. How about a guy wearing a mask standing in front of the terminal saying, "Eh, nobody's here." Flights are wide open. <laughs> Coming up on today's show, that Martin Shkreli story everybody's talking about. David, Eric, and I share our thoughts on the holidays, plus sportscaster Jim Gray. All that and more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S, IAN.com Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. 
David, remember when you were a kid and your parents would let you open one present before Christmas Day? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Usually they would pick which one it was, but yeah, I do remember that. It's one of my favorite, one of the most exciting moments of the year. Media Twitter opened that present last night. <laughs> it is Stephanie Clifford's L Magazine story, The Journalist and the Pharma Bro, which has lit up Twitter and shows no signs of stopping at this moment. So I figure we should, we have to talk about it. We really do. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And maybe we begin just by telling the story a little bit. Go ahead. If people <laughs> have not read it. Okay, here's where we start. Christy Smythe was a reporter with Bloomberg News. She was covering the trial of Martin Shkreli. Now, if you don't remember the name, Shkreli is the guy, Clifford writes, quote, who increased the price of a life-saving drug by 5,000% overnight and made headlines for buying a one-off Wu-Tang Clan album for a, a reported $2 million. That guy. He's one of those people that was made for the modern media age, and I you could, I guess, interpret that a lot of ways, but I mean it very, very narrowly in that he appeared and kind of evolved five steps in the blink of an eye so that if you weren't on Twitter, the moment that his name was first mentioned, you already felt like you were behind in the story. <laughs> you, you thought that he must have been a figure... Or that you just had missed for a for a year or something, because he was so ingrained almost the moment you heard his name. There was that gallery of people that felt like they were created for old Gawker. Yeah. He was one of them, not only because of what he did, but because he was then trolling people on Twitter, including reporters, mm -hmm. and sort of had this whole online persona that was either separate or highly related to his actual persona. We'll get to that in just a second. But Smythe with Bloomberg News is covering Shkreli's legal travails. Then he starts asking her for advice. And then he starts doing a thing that powerful people often do, which is he hints that he might sit down for an interview with her. Mm. Or in this case, even cooperate with a book project. Mm -hmm. Now, motives of people doing that differ. But one thing it tends to do is put reporters on ice. Because they're not going to criticize you or write bad things about you sometimes if they think there's a possibility of them getting an interview down the line. Yeah. And as Smythe admits in the article, maybe I was being charmed by a master manipulator. Now, from that point, Shkreli and Smythe's relationship becomes deeper. Smythe goes to Shkreli's house to listen to his Wu-Tang album. As one she, does. As one does. She defends his trolling on Twitter. And after he is sent to jail, Clifford writes, my texted and emailed Shkreli's friends asking if he had his medications and arranging for someone to retrieve his cat, which is not something journalists typically do for their subjects. It goes on from there. Smythe quits her job at Bloomberg. She separates from her husband. She becomes Shkreli's girlfriend while he's in prison. That belief in himself, she says, although it may seem delusional at times, it draws you in. I don't know if everything he was saying was true, but maybe like 1% is, and that's awesome on its own. So we can probably press the pause button right here. <laughs> <laughs> this is sort of act one of the story. Yeah. Journalist is covering this guy. Journalist starts a relationship with this guy. And this guy happens to be a very notorious guy. Mm-hmm a guy who is currently in prison for fraud. Yeah. 
Uh, well, can I just hone in on one rather small aspect of this? Uh, and this I, I mean, I, I, I asked this question only a little bit facetiously. Uh, love interests uh, or just say journalistic integrity aside, has it ever occurred to you to go to bat for the subject for a subject of one of your pieces online when you were feel like they were being maligned separate from outside of the context of your piece being maligned? That is no, never. Yeah. Okay. I, I think that's kind of an, I don't think that's a make it or break it aspect of this whole thing, but that's one of those things that did pop into my head, right? Where it's just like that, seems that is there's there's no real journal well i guess that would turn out to be a sort of ethical issue but at its very base there's no ethical issue to discussing a subject of one of that you've been writing about online right but at some point it crosses a line to kind of general impropriety and then obviously is a red flag when it comes to the sort of large scale well problem yeah when you're when you when you have started with the relationship with them and then you are defending them online. I just think you have evolved into something other than a journalist, which, mm -hmm. by the way, Smythe seems very willing to admit. <laughs> the the part of the the part of this about that it was about journalistic ethics is pretty cut and dry. I don't think anybody's really too worried about that aspect of the story here. Let us move on to Act Two, David. Mm -hmm. All right. So Clifford writes, David, that when Shkreli found out about this L Magazine article, mm -hmm. he stopped communicating with Smythe. <laughs> he can't call her and apparently he hasn't replied to her email. So she has heard nothing. So then Clifford goes to Shkreli and says, Hey, I'm writing this article. I have these facts. I want you to respond to. And the statement he gives her about this woman, he is apparently in a relationship with, or was in a relationship with is Mr. Shkreli wishes Ms. Smythe the best of luck in her future endeavors. <laughs> I'm sorry for the laughter. That is uh, a, a, uh, canonical phrase in the pro wrestling industry when someone gets uh, gets fired. <laughs> someone mentioned that on Twitter. They yeah, WWE is very fond of wishing people best in the in their future endeavors to the point where getting fired in pro wrestling is referred to as commonly as being future endeavored. Yeah, it's a tough way to end a relationship. And then, and again, please follow the bouncing ball here. Clifford, as the writer of the L Magazine article, then has to go to Smythe and deliver that message from the man that she was in a relationship with at some yeah. point. Then there's act three of this story. Okay. So act one journalist is covering a subject. Journalist begins a relationship with a subject. Uh -huh. Act two subject is no longer communicating with journalist and apparently issues a statement that he is no longer in a relationship with her. Act three is this Clifford writes, watching Smythe. I finally realized her motive for telling her story. She wants Shkreli and hopes putting their love on the record might at last give her some power in the relationship. So what Clifford is writing here is that she's wondering, wait, why is Smythe telling me all this? It's a great question. And she puts it down that she wants to get this off her chest and that this, she thinks, will give her some power in the relationship. So that's kind of the third act, third dimension of this piece. Mm-hmm. Wow. I don't even know where to go with that. Uh, th that is everything that happened. I mean, you're, you're left with this incredibly... Okay, for a story that's this wild, that sort of affects one the way it does, has affected, I think, everyone that's read it. 
there's not a lot of question marks, right? This isn't, and, and even the big reveal at the end, well, I guess it was pretty significant based on everything we had. So the, the big reveal at the end, as, as it's sort of constructed, is that Screlly is no longer speaking to her. That when, that when, he, when confronted with the notion of the story, he was just like, he just ghosted. Uh, and, but I think that what's interesting there is not that he disappeared, because we, from what we know about him, from, from what we know about him almost exclusively through the piece, that doesn't, that shouldn't shock anyone too much. No. Almost the more shocking thing is all are all the questions that are sort of immediately left unanswered, right? You get a whole sort of reliability of the narrator question, right? Or of the subject question. Uh, you get a reliability. I mean, the story is kind of all thrown into question, right? I mean, obviously, the, everything here was fact-checked to the extent that it could be. Um, but the story was certainly laid out in such a way that it took... It, I mean, that it took Christie Smythe's story at face value, right? And 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 even if there was some question about the story, I don't think there's any, I don't have any objection to the way the story was presented. Um, but certainly at the end, you are left wondering if what you had read was true or whether it was to some degree a construct of Christie Smythe's imagination. Well, that's one way to put it, but I think the other way you could put it was, is it true or was it a construct of martin shkreli's imagination exactly i think that it's a fair reading that they were not in a relationship to the degree that christy smite thought they were the question is if that's true whether or not martin shkreli faked it, it led her to believe they were in a relationship when he didn't have an intention of that so that it would help his case or his eventual release um or whether there was just a lot of miscommunication going on yeah, I want to read you the Erin Carmon did a really interesting interview with Clifford, the author of the L magazine piece, about some of these issues. And this is one thing Clifford said. I think he gave her a lot of reasons to believe that this relationship was a serious relationship and that this relationship would work. He approved his lawyers calling her his fiance in a letter. And he approved the letter to the court saying he's in a serious relationship. He can stay with me when he's out. That was a letter that uh, that uh, Smythe was going to write on his behalf. Mm-hmm. So that I mean that all that stuff is on the record. Yeah. And and that's the thing. And again, when we talk about relationship here, this is somebody who is in prison. Mhm. So relationship is sort of a matter of <laughs> matter of interpretation here. What do you actually what does that actually entail? Right. Besides sort of a verbal commitment that could be you know changed or at any time. Yes. I I enjoyed that interview that you just referenced. I mean, and it's and again, what an amazing media age where we have lengthy and incisive interviews with journalists moments, <laughs> mere moments after their story drops and becomes a phenomenon. <laughs> the next uh, day, yeah, here it is. The editor of the piece, I think, was also quoted in some places. I mean, like every like every bit of this has become a sensation. Um and I think that's almost as interesting as as the piece itself, right? I mean that that you, I mean, listen, in in this day and age, I'd say the number one indicator of how of of how pervasive, how effective, how how why how widely acclaimed the story is, is if you log on to Twitter and you see people discussing it without referencing the title or the subject or the author or anything it's just there is like an open convert it's like walking in 
to a cocktail party and it's just like the and you're just catching bits and pieces of a conversation because everybody that you follow is discussing it and it's way past the point of hashtagging or adding anybody it's just the topic of conversation oh my god i was so happy to have seen Alyssa bresnak's tweet last night our colleague here at the ringer when the story came out that actually linked the story in it Mm -hmm. because otherwise I would have been like, what are we all talking about again? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what do we do? I just happened to be on at that moment. And I yeah. was so happy because I, I feel like I always miss that moment. I know. I know. It's, I mean, it's, it's a, it's just a very specific thing of this day and age, but it's, but, but listen, but this story kind of lived up to all the hype, right? I mean, it was, it's sort of an amazing piece of journalism. I mean, uh, well, I mean, what what was your what was your first reaction when you read it? Well, there's two. I'll, I'll say there are two two interesting things here. One is that from the journalism point of view, one is that Clifford told Carmone that she did not necessarily want to take this piece to the New York Times magazine. She used to work at the New York Times uh -huh. because she didn't want this to be an ethics and media story. Mm -hmm. She recognized that that either that was not the way she wanted to tell the story, or I would say this: that's the boring version of the story. Yeah. Clifford writes, I wanted it to be a careful, slow telling of Christie, Christie and Christie's story. And I and I think that's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Th that's those are the motives. And that's the story you want to understand. How did we get from here? I'm covering this case in the courts in Brooklyn to this point of view where I'm sitting here waiting for any kind of official statement from this imprisoned fraudster about what the status of my relationship with him is. That is absolutely the right way to tell the story. Yeah. The other thing I was sort of amused by was this whole thing of that Clifford had done something wrong by writing this story and telling this story. Yeah, that was uh, there, there. There, there was some of that. Did you get that at all? Is there is there any possible case for that? Well, the, I mean, the just to be super clear, the case against writing it. I think is very specifically about whether or not about about an assumption that people have made that that Smythe is has some sort of psychological issue that would allow her to be put in this situation or allow, or, or whatever, and that that is and that it's exploitative. It's exploiting that to to be writing about it now, which they're just making up based on reading yeah, the story. Exactly. That's there's no I, I'm not sure that there'd be an issue even if that were true or even that were more 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 compellingly true. Frankly, uh, well, I mean, there's a lot there. Are, there's a lot of oddity in here. I, I wonder if the reception would have been different. Um, and I guess this does fall into the blanket of journalism. Would, would the reception have been significantly different had there not been the the photo spread as part <laughs> of this thing? That was a weird. That was a weird touch. I mean, I, I don't. I don't. I won't say like it, there was nothing wrong with it, but it's just funny. Like you're reading this very intense story, and then there's the kind of L magazine posed photographs. Yeah, and it's kind of like, oh, what? You know, <laughs> which is just a different treatment than it would have been if it were in a different place. Sure, but it doesn't matter, right? I mean, it's like okay, so what? Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change what the words are, right? But it does change. What I think is the, I mean, the, I mean, you you read the, the the line about about her trying to kind of get control in the relationship, but it does sort of, I mean, that it, that the issue of why the story why the story is being told is, I think a, a part of a lot of journalism, right? Whether or not it's deliberate, and I, it's it's I think it's particularly significant here, 
Um, because I think from the second page, you're wondering who's in whose interest is this story being told, right? I mean, even if it's straightforwardly in Martin Screlly's interest to to paint himself into good, even if this, even if everything in it is true, if their relationship is real, if they're really in love, like why now? Why is this story being told now? And so you are asking the question. Uh, and I think it would be naive to think that that's not part of the reading experience. It would be naive if the editors didn't expect that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so putting your protagonist, like if you want to use that term, in a fashion photo spread, again, sort of, sort of, part of the, 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 you know, the vocabulary of Elle magazine in a certain sense, but this piece is bigger than Elle magazine. And you can, and they knew it was going to be bigger the moment that they, they greenlit it. I think interrogating, the motives of your subjects is always a good idea from the writer's point of view, from the editor's point of view. Absolutely. I do hate it when media Twitter does this thing where whenever a piece is com- comes out like this, or there's an interview with Isaac Chotner and the New Yorker and everybody goes, why would they agree to this? Why mm-hmm. would they agree to this interview? And you're like, are you their PR firm? You are a journalist who is pr- trying to persuade people presumably to talk to you all the time. Yeah. And let me tell you why they agreed to the interview, because Clifford convinced Smythe to do the piece. Yeah. Smythe is a journalist. Exactly. (laughs) And and if you read the interview with Carmona, it's really interesting because she says she she says one of her pitches was you're a journalist. You know, it's a good story. Right. She she specifically appealed to her on those grounds. Mm hmm. And she also says much more sort of to the point here. She says, I think she'd gotten tired of basically covering this up and not being able to say to the world that she was in love and she was in love with Martin Shkreli. Mm-hmm. There you go, right? I have this thing. I've been cagey about or haven't been able to tell about it. I'm just going to tell my story. I'm going to get it off my chest. And by mm-hmm. the way, some of the ancillary content from this last night was Christy Smythe herself on Twitter. Yeah. Defending herself in some cases from people. She says, I realize it's hard for many people to accept that one, Martin is not a psychopath, and two, a woman can choose to do something with her life, which does not affect you, that you in no way approve of. But that's okay. This had so many layers to it. It's just unbelievable. When I saw her tweeting last night, I was like, oh my gosh, this is now we're into like act four of this story. Yeah. No, I I, I agree. I I it's well, I mean, I think that that her tweeting with with you know self-awareness and confidence i think was in some ways the sort of perfect almost the happy ending to the story right i mean the 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 end of the story itself was incredibly bittersweet right i mean it was it was a sad oh, it was it was deeply gutting. sad right that that he had sort of wished her the best in her future endeavors and that she was just like oh that's cute sort of you know i mean she sort of she took it almost too easily in stride um but again we're sort of talking about the the content of the story is so hard to get away from um, the story was told really, really well. And, but the, but the fact that it's grown into this bigger thing, I mean, I don't know. What do you, I mean, does, does, the, is this the definition of a, an effective piece of journalism of this style in the modern age? Like, is this, is this, was this rollout and reaction what every journalist is hoping for right now when you write a feature story? Well, I mean, I think it I think it hits the erogenous zones of media Twitter. Right. <laughs> it's a love story, which is interesting. It has the goods from the subject, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's about Martin Shkreli, who's <laughs> a source of endless and bottomless fascination for people. And 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 like I said, somebody who's in the gawker gallery of of characters. 
so I think in that sense, sure, yeah. I mean, it's incredibly, <laughs> incredibly satisfying. And there's all these different things to talk about, which we have just spent a segment talking about. So mission accomplished. There's so much of it, but, but just, to, just to put the icing on the cake or just to, just to close this thing off, there's no issue of journalistic, journalistic integrity here on the part of Elle magazine. I don't see one. Or all, right. I don't, uh, I, I or don't Stephanie understand. Clifford, obviously. Um, it was really well done. It was really well. Do you think that she's right that it wouldn't have gotten the same, the, the kind of, that it wouldn't have been the same had it gone through the New York magazine machine? I mean, she was sort of specifically referencing New York, the, the, the paper and not the magazine, saying that she didn't Times. have a relationship with, right. She, she didn't have a relationship with the magazine, she said, this being Clifford. Do you think that, I mean, I read this, aside, photos aside, and I think part of the reason why the photos were so jarring was because I read this sort of separate from any sort of, from any, I wasn't thinking of Elle magazine. I didn't feel, I wasn't holding a magazine when I was reading it. This could yes. have been, this is, this is of, you know, this is from the newest issue of like, holy shit, you've got to read this, dot, <laughs> you know, on, on, on uh, through this Twitter link.com. I mean, the magazine, I, it's, it, I just renewed my subscription to holy shit. You've got to read this. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it, it it felt like it was just really well done. I mean, was there is there would you, how, if you were if you were an editor assigned to this, would you have done anything differently? That's a really good question. I mean, I I'm sure you could we could argue you know a, a word here and a line here, but no, I mean, I just I I think the thing about not getting hung up on the, trying to make this into a Columbia journalism review. No offense to Columbia journalism review. Even I mean, that's probably they they actually published some really good stories. I'm trying to think of like a, making this into a journalism ethic story would have been a big mistake. Mm -hmm. Instead of a story about this, the way this reporter the 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 very very strange trip and and admittedly to her she admits a very strange trip that this reporter went on. I think that's exactly what it, I think that story should have been told. Absolutely. So no, I don't. I don't have like a big edit for you, uh, but I am amazed. Even Jeff Passan, the ESPN baseball reporter, is like throwing off anecdotes today. Did you see this? So he says someone. Uh, he says I've been saving this anecdote for a story, but screw it. Someone suggested that <laughs> Tampa Bay Rays pitcher Tyler Glasnow try to get angry before his starts. To do this, he would look at pictures of one person. He pulled out his phone and showed me. It was Martin Shkreli. So there you go. A major league starter was looking <laughs> at photos of this guy so he would get angry enough to go out and dominate. All right, David, let's do the overworld Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. Let's begin with this tweet from the Washington Post. Listen up. Every time you listen to Bing Crosby's White Christmas about five people have died from the coronavirus between the beginning and the end of the song. Wow. There's no word Twitter joke to write, please stop listening to White Christmas. Thanks to T-Sizzle and David Wilson. Uh, David, among the bowl games that have been scrubbed due to the coronavirus, news broke this week that the guaranteed rate bowl has been canceled. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, so it wasn't exactly guaranteed, thanks to Stuart Mandel and Tolu Thomas. <laughs> and finally, David, this tweet from Eater. J.J. Abrams recreated his favorite London restaurant in virtual Legos. J.J. Abrams recreates a London restaurant in virtual Legos. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. It was a lot of fun to put together until the end when several key pieces ended up missing and the whole thing fell apart. 
Thanks to the laundry. You think dragging J.J. <laughs> Abrams is the real meaning of the season? Congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke. Oh, my God. Of the week. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was... A kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier, thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. All right, David, in the notebook dump, I thought we'd do a little holiday talk. Yeah. And I thought we'd bring on our producer, Erica Cervantes. Oh, what a treat. Hello. Come in, Erica. There she is. All right, holiday talk. I got I got a few observations for you guys. Have you guys been singing any carols or listening to any carols as part of your holiday celebration? Um, Erica, do you want to go first? I feel like I'm the Grinch because I have not. <laughs> I have <laughs> I don't know. It just it's a, it's an odd year. So besides the Mariah it's an odd Carey. Year. Um, hit song. <laughs> this is my observation about carols is I don't know the words to any of them. <laughs> Even at my advanced age, like David, the ones we were reading, like from hymnals as kids, I feel like I have a pretty good, oh, yeah. a pretty good handle on those. But like Santa Claus is coming to town. Can you, can you give me like any words from that, from that I've song? I've been listening to a lot of these things because I've, you know, I, my my youngest is about to turn two, so this is his first real Christmas. So we, there has been, I feel like, sort of a concerted effort to, like, barrage him with all of the songs, make sure that he's heard all the songs, make sure that he can identify a Christmas tree and Santa Claus and a reindeer and all this. You know, the, there's, there's been a little <laughs> bit of back to school about the whole thing, which I've not dealt with in a while. So I, I've heard, I, I've probably sung along to just about every song of my youth at some point over the past month. but. 
uh, I've not been caroling. <laughs> um, I, I was, I don't even, I can't, I feel like I'm going to shame somebody. I've seen some terrible caroling. I, we were at a, uh, at a regional, um, kind of like an old timey village thing that I guess shall not be named for the purposes of not, you know, bad mouthing anyone. And, uh, it's a great place to go. Great place to hang out. Really cool Christmas lights and everything. But we drove up and there was like, at like foursome, two men, two women singing. You, I mean, in, in old timey dress, like Dickensian dress and <laughs> instruments singing carols. And we were just like, oh my God, that's awesome. It's carolers. And we like parked the car and we like rushed the kids over there. And they were just terrible. I mean, just <laughs> <laughs> like, like no, like you, there, there were, they were so bad. Like I couldn't even tell who was singing harmony and who was, I mean, the whole thing was just off. Um, I mean, the, the costumes were on point, but it, but the singing was just really not good, which made which sort of you know was a bad start to the season. Um, but I, yeah, I've, I've heard some other carol. Like, hey, it's well, this is a. I live in 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 Princeton, New Jersey. Now it's a sort of it's a sort of um, winter wonderland here. So I'm it's a, it's a nice place to be. Were any of those carolers like strumming a lute or a lyre? One of them had a guitar. At first, I thought the guitar guy was the only bad one. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, they have to let him sing because he's the only one that knows, you know, all these <laughs> all, all these carols on guitar. Um, but no, it was all there. There was. There, yeah, there are a lot of issues up there. I, uh, I know David and I have been experiencing the holidays through our kids, which is always a very very special experience, you know, because we're we're old. We're jaded. We, we, we host a media podcast. So we, we need to sort of regain our innocence in a way, David. And I thought it would be helpful maybe as that process to, to experience the season through fresh eyes to ask my children, Owen, my son, who's seven, Stella, my daughter, who's five, to talk about what their Christmas wish was, what their holiday wish was. Okay. You know, what is, what, what through the eyes of a child do you want most this holiday season? Here's Ooh. what they said. My special wish is that you would stop talking about NBA ratings. And it's my special wish, too. <laughs> Isn't it nice to see the world through the eyes of a child? Oh, that's amazing. Could that have asked for Legos. Amazing. Could have asked for, you know, a dollhouse. No, they just want everybody to stop talking so much about NBA ratings. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. That's all I got. Um, special holiday traditions that you guys do either now or have done in the past. I'll start with you, Erica. Well, we make tamales. Yes. There you go. Make them from scratch. We try, we try our best. Um, haven't quite perfected <laughs> it, but, you know, it's always fun to get together with my mom and my sisters and do that. And this is like a day-long process, a bunch of people working in the kitchen at the same time? It is. It is. Mm-hmm. Nice. What about you, David? What's the what's the favorite holiday food around the shoemaker table? Um, dang, I don't think we have it. I mean, there's not much in the way of traditions. We're we're you know, um, in my wife's family in the non-COVID era. I mean, she's a gigantic family, so it's just sort of everybody piles into grandma's house, and uh, it's just madness for about you know. 36 hours until people start going their separate ways. Um, uh, at, at, at the, the shoemaker household, meaning my parents' household, um, I mean, at, in my, in my adult, you know, all of my years sort of returning home 
during adulthood, I think the closest thing to a tradition after is that opening presents will do like a, you know, do a movie on Christmas night. Most people do that. Make sure to hit the malls the day after Christmas. Not really so much because I want the sales, but because I'm generally not home for very long. And South Park Mall in Charlotte, North Carolina is like one of the seven wonders of the modern world, I believe. <laughs> I'm sorry, double check. I'm Googling right now to, yeah. to check this out. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, I just like, um, I mean, and honestly, one of the things that I miss most in the COVID era is just being, for some reason, being in malls. I don't go to malls all the time. I'm not like a, a movie teen from the 80s, but like, I don't just go there just to hang out. But there's something about, all the gas they pump in and the strategic lighting that they put in to make you want to stay in the mall is great. I mean, it's, it really does work and it feels good to be there. Yeah. Even after malls kind of became passe, this time of year was a great time to go back Yeah, because they'd be decorated and malls seem to have a, like regain their purpose in the holiday yes. season. There was just a real, there was a really good feeling about that. No, it's funny. I remember when you and I used to live together, you would always, you would have the most productive post-Christmas mall visit ever because you would, you would come back to New York and you'd have like, so, you'd have like a new computer or something like that. And I was like, wait, did you, is that under the tree? It's like, no, nah, we went to the mall afterwards and you know, <laughs> mom and dad thought I needed an upgrade. I would, like, I would, it was like everything that you got, everything, all the clothes that I would get. And I would keep some of them, but most of it was basically just a signifier of like, you now have what, $89 of pre-sale, it's like pre-tax money, pre-holiday sale money to spend at the J Crew, And then you go and you like return the sweater and buy like 15 gray button-down shirts, which would, I guess my normal <laughs> haul uh, with, the, with the savings. Um, but yeah, I, I would, I mean, I would, you always get some money and, all, and always get some trade-ins or whatever I would spend. Uh, the the post-Christmas shopping was more fun than, than the Christmas haul itself. It was incredible, Erica. I mean, I would be, I've never been so jealous of David than in those days, like when he would return on December 30th. I'm like, Where'd all this stuff come from? <laughs> that was unbelievable. This is my favorite Christmas tradition. I was thinking about this because my, my grandfather passed away last month. But when I was a kid, we used to always go to his house in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. This is Albuquerque. And for some reason, and I'm not quite sure how this tradition got started, the whole family had lobster tails for Christmas on oh Christmas Eve. Oh gosh. And now this is and this is not a posh family at all. These are all like public educators. And Albuquerque, you might know, is not the seafood capital of America, more in the <laughs> green and red chili <laughs> capital of America. But for some reason, we would have lobster tails with drawn butter for Christmas. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And and it had such a kind of like I mean, as a kid, first of all, I just kind of wouldn't eat it for a couple of years and then, you know, gradually realized that lobster is the greatest food in human history next to red and green chili, I might add. And uh, I would just eat it. And it was incredible. And I'm pretty sure one of my uncles ate lobster and green chili together like that. Well, was I think that would be expected in in, uh, in, in that region. Um yeah, this I don't know. This is a Christmas memory because it's separate from Thanksgiving, and I was only in North Carolina, you know, during those times. Generally, growing up, but yeah, if we ever when we had our Christmas dinner, we knew that the family, and this is on the, the shoemaker side, we knew the family had sort of made it when the shrimp cocktail became a staple of <laughs> of the Christmas. Christmas dinner. Um, we, or as we, nanny, we, we've crawled out of the scratch biscuit era and into the. <laughs> We're having shrimp cocktail tonight. 
Oh man, it was so good. And I, to this day, there's nothing that gets me. Nothing that brings me that like delicious food, extinct food nostalgia, although not extinct, like a shrimp cocktail. Or as Nanny Shoemaker would say, shrimp. shrimp. She, there is no H in her pronunciation. <laughs> oh my God, I love the Nanny Shoemaker. Uh, <laughs> I want to know more about her on a future podcast. All right, well, we're going to go with Erica's uh, tamales as the best sounding uh, Christmas fare and David's trips to the mall post-Christmas, now sadly canceled by COVID as the best uh, way to get your presents after Christmas. All right, David, in the interview slot today, Jim Gray. You know Jim Gray. Everybody knows Jim Gray. He has worked everywhere. He's talked to everybody. Here's Jim Gray. When Jim Gray worked for CBS Sports, the executives there had a nickname for him. They called him Our Jim Gray. Because every time a viewer turned on the TV, an announcer was saying, and now let's go down to our Jim Gray. Gray was present for everything from the Malice in the Palace brawl to the Mike Tyson earbite. He has written about those moments in a new book, Talking to Goats, which you can buy right now. Jim Gray, thanks for coming on the Press Box. Brian, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I want to start here. You worked for CBS and NBC during the 80s and 90s, which we now look back at, I think, is the last golden age of network sports. What was the best thing about working for a network during that period? The people and the people that you got to uh, work with, uh, work for and be around and the camaraderie that was built and the relationships that were able to develop. All of these things, Brian, took place in front of each other. Um, and if it wasn't in front of each other, it was, you know, then by telephone. So you were actually talking to somebody. And we'd have meetings, uh, we'd have seminars, we'd do the games together, we'd travel together. Uh, so I would say uh, the people and those relationships and, and the time that you were able to spend with everyone. One of the guys you highlight in this book is John Madden. How'd you become friends with John Madden? John Madden, you know, obviously I knew him from coaching and then he was a, a great broadcaster and we became friends uh, after he had stopped coaching and started broadcasting. And I was a young broadcaster going to all of the big fights in Las Vegas. And John was a huge fight fan. Uh, back in that day, uh, there used to be closed circuit is how you would watch the fights. And everybody would go to a theater and pay money to go into a theater. And then you could watch Ali and Frazier or you could watch any of the big fights, but particularly the heavyweight fights. And John, uh, while he was coach or just after he was coach, procured the rights uh, for the fights in the Oakland Northern California area, uh, where he, where he lived. And he would then come down to the fights. He would take either the bus or the train and he would come to Caesar's palace where most of the fights were at that time. And he would sit down in the lobby, uh, right by this elevator that went out to the pool or upstairs to a fine dining restaurant. And he would just be on this little bench. And so I would go early, uh, because I, I was working for Bob Arum, uh, or for Don King. Uh, interviewing all of the fighters and putting them up on the satellite. So back in those days, Brian, uh, they didn't have to send reporters and you'd put this out on the satellite, which was way ahead of its time uh, in the uh, uh, early 80s. Uh, and so they'd save all the money and they'd get the interview with Marvin Hagler from me and take it and use it for themselves or from Ray Leonard or from Ali or from whoever it was. And, uh, and then Don King did that. So there would be Madden would be sitting down on that bench and he was a great coach and a great guy and a huge boxing fan. So I would just start talking to him. We were the only ones there on Tuesdays. You know, everybody else would come in on Friday for the Saturday fight. 
So we just began hanging out and uh, talking and eating meals and became great friends. And you wound up living at his apartment in the Dakota in New York City. How did that happen? Uh, we were playing golf one day. And uh, I said to John that I had an opportunity to uh, uh, go to work for NBC. But I didn't know, you know, anything about living in New York. You know, I'd been from Colorado, uh, went to Philadelphia, uh, then came to California. And, you know, I didn't know what it would be like to live in New York. And he said, well, how long will you have to live there? I said, well, probably through the 88 Olympics in Seoul, because I was working for NBC and this is 1987. And, but I'm not sure, uh, but they want me back, back in the city. Uh, well, I was like the guy who came for dinner and never left. He said, well, why don't you just stay at my place at the Dakota? You know, I'm only there during football season. And when I have games on the East coast in Philadelphia, in Boston, uh, in New York, uh, or, uh, on that East coast, you know, I stay in the apartment the rest of the time it's empty. I mean, my kids come from time to time and my wife, Virginia comes, but you can stay there. Uh, so he said I could do that. So he gave me his place in the Dakota and, uh, ended up staying there for quite a few years and, and, uh, uh, you know, saw John when, whenever he came in and I tried to reciprocate his son, Mike, Mike, man's a great guy. Mike went to work for the, uh, Los Angeles Raiders. And so I gave Mike my apartment in, uh, in Marina Del Rey for uh, him to live in because uh, I kept my apartment thinking I would come back to L.A. pretty soon. But it uh, wasn't a very fair trade, Brian. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> As crash pads go, I can think of worse than the Dakota. You know, oh, that, unbelievable. It was great. And all the people that lived in there and all the people who'd come by the building. And it was it was quite a great experience. Wonderful experience. And I have have John I have, I have Coach Madden to thank for that. He's a he. he Madden's a genius. Okay. Madden was a real estate genius while he was a coach. Uh, he obviously knew everything there was about football and, and how to win games and Super Bowl. And then he won however many 25 Emmys, uh, as a broadcaster and created the Madden game. John Madden is, is literally, uh, a true genius and a great guy. You and I are on the same page on this because there's been some revisionist history, you know, about broadcasters and all this stuff. And I say, have we really forgotten how great John Madden was every year he was on television? Is it possible that people could could forget that John Madden was the greatest of all time and will be, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest of all time? He was so spectacular. He made it so much fun. He transferred so much of that wisdom uh, and he was relatable. He was that every guy, not only the light beer commercials and the Ace Hardware commercials, but that's who he was. He traveled the country by train, then by bus. He was claustrophobic, so he didn't want to fly anymore, which contributed to him uh, not continuing to coach as well. But by doing that, when you would get on the bus with him, he knew every restaurant along every corridor in every small town at every place and all these nooks and crannies of America. He was, he was literally uh, Americana, and he could tell you just everything about the topography and the geography and the landscape and the people. And then the people would see him and they'd love him. And he loved the people. Madden was never in a hurry. He had mm. time. He had time for people's stories and he wanted to hear them and he could make you laugh and people made him laugh. And, and it was just, he, so he made it fun. So he transferred all of that to the football broadcast, Brian. And that every man you know, nobody understands professional football, 
the X's and the O's. They can talk all they want about all this jargon and everything. All they understand is where the ball goes. Okay. That's all they know. Where does the ball end up and was the play successful or unsuccessful? All right. Well, he took all of that jargon, went boom, and all this other stuff that he created. And it made people understand. And then, of course, he created, you know, the greatest video game ever with Madden, which which the kids know today and players know today. They don't necessarily know that Madden won a Super Bowl. No, they don't know that Madden won 25 Emmys or 30 or whatever the number was, something outrageous. They know him from the game. Yeah, you and I agree on that 100 percent. You've explained to me before that your TV career is based on relationships from Tom Brady to Kobe Bryant and, and on and on and on. And you write in the book, I found that relationships and loyalty matter as much as ability. Right. Yeah. Well, what, what's it what's it like to be in a relate when you're when you talk about a relationship? Let's take let's take a specific one. Let's take Kobe Bryant. What was your okay. relationship with Kobe Bryant like? Well, I knew Kobe Bryant from when he was an infant. I knew Kobe Bryant when he was in his mother Pam's arms. When I say know him, I'd seen him. You know, I'd conversed with Pam. You know, I wasn't playing with a toddler in in her arms, but I w- there was a familiarity. Uh, I was a scout for the San Diego Clippers and for Paul Silas and Pete Babcock. Uh, in my early days of broadcasting, I also did that. Um, so I became very familiar with Kobe and then see him in the hallways and obviously so forth. And then broadcasting, I was with the uh, 76ers where obviously Joe had played. Uh, and, and then Kobe grew up uh, with, uh, you know, interludes over in Europe, in Italy and so forth, but uh, then Lower Marion High School. So I had known Kobe. I had known Kobe basically his whole life, uh, you know, and so we had just developed a a great rapport and and a friendship and a trust. Uh, We weren't socially inclined or involved. I mean, we had a few dinners over the years and we had some trips together where we became more uh, socially involved after his career. But during his career, we'd have dinner from time to time. Uh, but I probably interviewed him. This is a guest uh, between, you know, 100 and 200 times. And so, you know, uh, Marv Albert uh, used to say, you know, it's kind of funny about Kobe. Usually uh, we report on them. He reports to you. <laughs> and he was being funny. You know, you have to do it in Marv's accent and Marv's voice. And, and. So we had a great relationship and, and, you know, we were able to build that trust uh, over the years. And so we had a, a, a terrific uh, professional and personal relationship. And when it came time to have to ask him the questions that were important to ask him about his performance or what had transpired that might affect his performance, I did. You tell the story in the book, 2003, Kobe Bryant calls you and says, I want to do an interview. What transpired from there? Well, he was quite upset with uh, the way he was being treated, uh, specifically with Shaquille O'Neal and the way that Shaq had uh, uh, treated him and and was behaving toward the organization. And he wanted to get a lot of things uh, uh, off his chest, Brian, and go kind of go through it all and talking to goats. And uh, it it aired on ESPN and the ramifications and the repercussions uh, reverberated for a long time. And uh, I guess to a certain extent, uh, probably led to ultimately the breakup, even though it was heading that way anyway. It was amazing because you say in the book, and I did not know this, that you had to actually edit a Kobe comment out of the interview where he said that uh, the guy selling donuts at 7-Eleven has more pride and dedication to his job than Shaq does. (laughs) I can't actually use that in the interview. I had to take that out because 
again, I had a good relationship with Shaq. And while these were Kobe's words and, you know, we put all the other stuff about, you know, being lazy and, you know, not diligent in his job and, you know, getting surgery on company time because it happened on company time and being fat and out of shape and whatever else he said, you know, I don't have it all in front of me at this moment, but, you know, the gist of it was extremely volatile and uh, uh, highly, uh, obviously, uh, controversial and, and all Kobe's words. And uh, he wanted it off his chest. And uh, the reason that I took that out, not only my relationship with, uh, with Shaq, but I just thought that was a bridge too far for Kobe, uh, for himself and for other players. And I said, you know what? Uh, you are not only burning these bridges, you know, it's the old line, you're napalming them. <laughs> so, you know, this is nuclear. And so I don't know how you're going to ever exist with any of these folks again or any other players again. Uh, when this is. And, and I said, and even if you don't want to, I don't want this in there, Kobe, uh, because I'm going to deal with Shaq. Shaq's going to be in the league for another eight years. Okay. And I like Shaq. So I called Shaq and told him what was coming. And he was, he did not want to respond. Uh, and then from then on uh, for the next two or three years, he called me Trader Gray <laughs> and basically wouldn't, uh, wouldn't uh, respond to me. And he's calling you that just because you were the guy sitting across from Kobe when he made all those comments. Correct. Well, Shaq was brilliant in recruiting people. He could recruit his teammates. He could recruit the press. Uh, you know, he even recruited Phil Jackson, who was very difficult and mean and nasty to Kobe. And he even wrote in his book that he could feel the hatred from, from Kobe because he treated Kobe so poorly. And, um, and, and Shaq was, you know, big, big guy, but he was much more sensitive. So Shaq recruited everybody and, and would form these cliques and, uh, you know, he was very powerful with, with teammates and players around the league. Everybody follows he's like the, you know, the Pied Piper. Everybody wanted, you know, to be around Shaq and they still do. I mean, he's an engaging, fun, witty, uh, witty guy. So I called him and, uh, uh, obviously it led to, uh, it led to a, a whole lot of ramifications and, uh, he threatened to kill Kobe the next day. If he ever said anything like that to Jim Gray again, uh, or to anybody, and Kobe jumped up right there and wanted to fight him. And obviously that, that didn't go on. It got broken up and, and separated. Uh, but they even installed a metal detector there. This is amazing. <laughs> Just in case somebody took it too far in that relationship the next day. So that's Kobe. You also write about your relationship with Mike Tyson in here, who I was amused to learn calls you Mr. Gray. How did your uh, relationship with Mike develop? Well, when he was, when he was a young fighter, well, I had gone out to the Catskills to uh, see him and interview him um, long before he was the youngest heavyweight champ. So I met him and uh, talked to him. He was very shy and he was, uh, well, I wouldn't say reluctant, but he was, you know, he didn't want to engage at that time. He wasn't ready for all of that. So, you know, it was, you know, a lot of yeses and nos and not much, not much, not much, you know, substance that you could put on the air because you can't sustain an interview like that. Uh, but he was friendly. He was just shy. Uh, so a couple of years later, uh, I was in a restaurant with my dad, Mateo's uh, on Pico, just off of uh, uh, on, on Westwood Boulevard, just off Pico. And he uh, he came in and he was with his two original managers, Jimmy Jacobs and Bill Caton. But Don King, just by chance or maybe not by chance, happened to be in the restaurant. <laughs> and uh, Mike got up and walked out. And there was a train set, Brian, that used to go around the uh, top of the restaurant in the bar area. 
and Mike started staring at the train right next to my table. So I said, hey, Mike, how are you? And this was a restaurant where everybody went on Sunday nights. It was like the happening spot. And we were lucky to get a table, but our table was out in the bar area. We weren't in seated in the main main area, but in there was, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra and Al Davis and um, uh, Lucille Ball and Will Chamberlain was there that night, Farrah Fawcett. So, I mean, it was literally, you know, a who's who of sports in Hollywood and it collided. So there was Mike. And anyway, I said hello to him and he reached out and shook my hand and, you know, said, I'm Jim Gray. And he said, you interviewed me. I know who you are. And his recall was tremendous. And he sat down and met my dad. And from the time he met my dad until the time my dad died seven years ago, every single time I saw Mike before we started an interview, a production meeting on the street, at a fight, in a restaurant, no matter where it was. How's your father, Jerry? How's your father, Jerry? Wow. And I don't know that he ever saw him again. He might have seen him one more time at one of his fights briefly, uh, but he, he always would ask. And so we just developed uh, that rapport. Uh, basically from that meeting in, in Mateo's. And then he let me come, you know, do interviews. And uh, I was at ESPN and Al Bernstein and I used to literally stand on milk cartons outside of his fights uh, in the parking lot of the Las Vegas Hilton when he was fighting all those guys for the title, uh, Bruce Seldon and Bone Crusher Smith and so forth, Tubbs. And uh, Al and I would be outside there, and the, but Mike would always do the interview uh, after his press conference. So. Um, that's basically how I got to know him, Brian. Long answer. I'm sorry. No, not at all. 1997, you're at the Tyson Evander Holyfield fight, which ends with Mike Tyson biting Holyfield's ears twice. And you go backstage and you do the interview and you write the book. It's, you said it was the only interview I've ever done that I felt I got exactly right. Why was that? Well, you know, I've done tens of thousands of interviews. Okay. And after every one of them, you review it in your head or you review the tape or you hear it again at some point, by and large. Well, that was the only time I walked away where I said internally, you know, I didn't stumble on a word. I did not follow up here. Oh, damn, why didn't I ask that question? How could I have forgot? Oh, dang it. Why was the producer talking in my ear? I missed that. None of that happened. And so I knew that I had gotten that right. And I knew before that nothing like this had ever happened. And that nothing like this was ever going to happen again. So back then, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have YouTube. Everybody wasn't walking around with a, with a, a, a computer in their pocket that acted as a camera and a phone and, you know, could record and do all of this. But I knew just because some biting somebody else's earlobe off wasn't going to happen again, particularly in a heavyweight championship bout, that I couldn't screw this up. And I was just happy that I didn't have to forgive myself for screwing it up because I never would have. And that's later, I think it was a later interview, Tyson threatened to kill you or in passing said, I, <laughs> I'm going to kill you. Do you just, are you able to just move on from that and go, well, that's just Mike and he's having a moment and we can carry on from here. He, he actually said that before the ear biting uh, fight, uh, he threatened to kill me and he threatened to kill Don King. And I asked him why, and he reiterated it. And then 45 seconds later, Brian, he kissed me on my cheek. And let me tell you, it was far more disturbing when he kissed me than when he threatened to kill me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Mike has had this wide range of emotions. 
you know, but I've always been grateful to him because he takes his own medicine and he answers the questions, Brian, at his worst moments. Okay. Like the ear biting, for example, he came out and answered those questions. He didn't release a press statement. He didn't hide behind his lawyers. He didn't say, I'm going to wait for the Nevada State Athletic Commission to decide whether they're going to release my purse, whether I'm going to be suspended. He came out and he took his own medicine. Well, how many guys do that anymore? How many people do that anymore? Uh, In any facet of life, they all don't want to take accountability and responsibility for their behavior. And even when it's heinous and despicable, as it was that night, he was there to represent his feelings and to state his case. And so I have great respect for that and admiration. Don't condone any of, don't condone any of his no. bad acts. Don't screw <laughs> that into, into that. No, but I do appreciate the fact that he's willing to explain them uh, the best way he can uh, to all of us. Now, we will not uh, construe it as Jim Gray is approving of ear biting in a, in a heavyweight boxing title or any of the other, uh, <laughs> any of the other things on Mike Tyson's list. The, um, you write in the book that your Pete Rose interview from the World Series in 1999, that people ask you about that still just about every week. What do people come up and, and say to you about that interview? Well, there are two schools. That was great. Way to go. Way to hold him accountable. You did the right thing. Or... How could you have ever done that to him? And why would you have done that on that night? Now, obviously, it's toned down considerably from the first few years where there was tremendous, you know, visceral reaction and, you know, repercussions for both he and I. So, uh, you know, now when people say it to you, well, you, I don't hear much anymore uh, from those who, who were, you know, really angry and mad. Because Pete has admitted uh, in his book a few years later, My Prison Without Bars, uh, he, he came clean finally. And then, you know, for talking to goats, about a year and a half ago, Brian, uh, I was at a cancer society dinner and they asked me would I come uh, introduce Mike Tyson was being honored. So I said, sure. Well, unbeknownst to me, they were also honoring Pete Rose that evening. And so... Pete got up and walked over to our table before the announcement. And I was sitting with my wife, Fran, and Kiki and Mike Tyson, and talking to Eddie Murphy, who was on the other side, the uh, actor. And I said to Fran, oh, no, here comes Pete, not knowing how this is going to go or having any idea. Well, he walks over, and so I got up out of my chair. And he said, Jim, you do a terrific job. You're really great at what you do. And I just kind of looked at him, and he stuck out his hand. And so I shook his hand, and I said, you really don't mean that. I know you don't mean that. And he says, yes, I do. You're terrific. And what happened with us happened a long time ago. And a lot has changed. And uh, there's a lot of water under that bridge. Uh, You're great. So then Mike Tyson jumped up, too, because he didn't know what was going to happen. So Pete says to Mike, who do you think would have won that fight between Jim and I? And Mike says, Jim, for sure. Wouldn't have been close. (laughs) We all laughed, took a picture. That was a year and a half ago. So about two or three months ago. Uh, for the book, Talking to Goats, I said, you know what? Fox was nice enough to give me a special on the book, a one-hour special. And I called Pete because we had other goats uh, come back and do the special. Tom Brady, Mike Tyson, Lonnie Ali representing Muhammad, Eric Dickerson, and, and so forth. Um, so I asked I, I asked um, Pete, would he participate in the special? Could I come and interview him? So he said, yes. 
So I drove to, from Los Angeles to Las Vegas and during the pandemic, and we met at the Bellagio Hotel, believe it or not, got a, got a big conference room, did the interview for an hour, and it was all good. And then at the end of the hour, my last question was, do you still bet on baseball? And he said, yes, I do, which surprised me. But he threw in the caveat, which we aired on Fox. He said, I still do bet. I haven't this year, but only legally, not illegally now. I only bet through the casino. But he was great. And by the way, that night, Brian, when we finished the interview, Pete walked away. He shook my hand. He was not aggravated. And at the end of this interview, shook my hand and we laughed. And then he did a he did a little thing for me for social media. He held up the book and he said, talking to goats, Jim Gray's talked to all the goats. Uh, I'm going to rip out the chapter in this book and read the other 19 chapters. And I hope all the rest of you will as well. Hope this book sells a million copies. <laughs> Perhaps the most amazing thing about that episode is you, in back in 1999, after the Rose interview, you get a message from Marlon Brando, the actual Marlon Brando, on your voicemail. And you get back to Marlon Brando, and he says what? I actually didn't get back to him initially, Brian. Uh, he was Jack Nicholson's uh, next-door neighbor, and they shared the same uh, security and fence line. And so we had gotten the number from, from Jack because Marlon Brando apparently read a number of newspapers. A day, five or six a day. And uh, I got a message on my machine to call Marlon Brando. And I thought it was one of my buddies playing a joke. So I wasn't going to participate in this, or maybe it was the shock jock or whatever it was. So I didn't respond. So about three or four weeks later, I'm playing golf with Jack Nicholson. And he says to me, what did Marlon want? And I said, what do you mean? What did he want? He said, uh, when I gave him your number, I said, oh, Jack, I threw that out. I thought that was somebody screwing around. Nobody doesn't call Marlon back, he said. So he gave me the number. So I called him back. I told him what I just told you. And he said, no problem. He said, do you have a, a few minutes? I'd, I'd like to give you some advice. I said, sure. He said, everything they say about me is true. I hope you can get there. I said, I don't understand what that means, Mr. Brando. He said, well, I've been reading all this about you in the newspapers for the past five or six weeks, whatever it had been. Uh, and I don't know much about sports. So I called Jack up and asked him if he knew you. And he said, yeah, I know him well. And he says, you're a good guy. And I keep reading all this. And it me, it was just an interview, and I don't understand all the ramifications of that interview, but I can't understand why it's still been such an issue. And he said, in my life, I don't respond to anything or anybody. So whatever some third party's impression of me that's been created, either in the tabloids or in the newspapers or on radio and TV, I just let that become their reality because everything they say about me is true. My family and my friends know it's not. And those are the only ones that really matter to me. If they're upset with me, I pay attention. I said, well, I'm not really there yet. He said, <laughs> the longer it goes, the more you will be. So many interesting things about that. One is that if you are Marlon Brando, it's probably easier to be at peace with your public image, perhaps, than uh, you know, than the rest of us mere mortals. But the other amazing part of that too is there was some pretty wild stuff going around about Marlon Brando toward the end of his life. But he was just completely he, or at least he told you, he was completely zen about it. He was completely removed from that, and that was okay. He was just going to let that cycle around in the world and not respond. Well, I didn't track that and follow that, so I'm not sure. I just remember him obviously as the great actor, and and you know, I wasn't involved in reading the tabloids or what, what necessarily all those things that were being said about him. But when you think about the gist of that and the people who are stalked by the tabloids, you know, 
even to this to this day, the people who come, you know, so-and-so meets a Martian or this one's doing this with that one or whatever it may be that, that that's in there. Um, his approach was really fascinating and, and incredible because he, he wasn't trying to have lawyers or uh, his PR firm or or himself try and say that didn't happen. That's not true. He just let them accept. He just accepted that everything that they had to say in there was total garbage. Why be involved with it and why combat it? It was, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. And then, you know, but when you see what goes on with some of these folks and how, and how they have to deal with this, I mean, just look at, you know, I don't know who the best example would be right now. I mean, maybe the queen of England or, or some of the Royal family or, you know, just some really super intense, highly famous people. I mean, I don't even know. You can't respond to it because God almighty, you spend your whole life, A, denying everything. And maybe there's a germ of the truth in all of this, or somebody says something, you know, that, but, but that doesn't cover the whole Petri dish. That germ doesn't somehow, you know, make the whole thing, uh, you know, true. It, it, it made that little something or that. And I, and I don't even know what I'm saying here, Brian, other than the fact is what an approach. And you know what? The longer it did go on, the easier it was to become like that. Because, you know, people can say anything they want, particularly now on social media and what's the accountability and what's, what's, you know, there's no editors anymore. There's anybody can say anything about anybody. And if that's what people are going to believe, that's what they're going to believe. It's not like you can stand up if you're Marlon Brando and start saying no to that. You, you literally don't have enough hours in the day. One more thing before we let you go, you did the decision special with LeBron James in 2010. If you could change one thing about the decision, what would you change? Hmm. One thing I would have changed. That's probably twofold. So I'm going to answer that in two parts. Okay. I would let people know why we were at the Boys and Girls Clubs and that they were getting millions of dollars that was going to help kids uh, and uh, has been the biggest contribution in the history uh, of, of that entity and that institution and how it helped thousands upon thousands of kids. I would explain why we were at the Boys and Girls Clubs and, and, and done a better job with that. And I probably would have tried to be a little more sensitive to the fans in Cleveland who were decimated in that Ohio area and around Akron uh, for losing a favorite son and somebody who would, you know, they had put all of their hopes and dreams um, in that community and that sporting community toward him uh, bringing a championship after all of the years that they had suffered through the drive, the fumble, um, the Indians and so forth. And, and so you know, even though it wasn't me leaving, uh, perhaps I could have, you know, been been a little bit more uh, in tune, uh, I guess, to how they might have received it. It's funny now because, you know, players in the NBA have so much more agency now than they did 10, 20, 30 years ago. And when people write about what we call the player empowerment era, they often track it back to the decision in 2010. What do, what do you make of that, that that has become part of its legacy? Well, because that's what it is. It was the Kurt Flood moment for this generation uh, and this era that we now, we now live in. If you take a look at the birth, really, of social media from that and the rise of the Players' Tribune and how people communicate, when LeBron got that hour from ESPN, he was then communicating without any of the institution's uh, involvement, without the Cavaliers, without the Heat, without the NBA, 
and without the NBA's media partners. Uh, he took over that hour. So he then took all of the risk and ultimately they've all now been rewarded and he was vilified for it. Well, he's not a villain. He's not a villain on any level. He just took, he just took his own entity and empowered himself and others. Okay. So look at what he's done on the court. All those finals appearances, four championships. Look at what he's done off the court. He built a school, getting people to vote, uh, all of the social uh, justice uh, initiatives that, that he, he is uh, involved with. And so it was misapplied to have ever uh, put him in a category of being a villain. And every single one of those players, not only in his sport, but all sports, have benefited and profiteered because of what he did and how he did it. We now spend entire seasons and entire playoffs, even before Kevin Durant wins a championship or Kawhi Leonard wins a championship, where are they going? Who are they going to be with? That becomes as big of a topic of conversation than the actual finals and playoffs themselves in a season. That's all because of LeBron. So they all owe him a great debt of gratitude. And um, I do believe that the way that the decision is portrayed now is much more accurate to what it represented then. And the passage of time uh, has now put it up into that tier. All right. Jim Gray's new book is Talking to Goats. It's available everywhere right now. Jim Gray, thanks for coming on the Press Box. Brian, always great to be with you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. All right. It's time for David Shoemaker. Guesses the strain pun headline. Yeah. All right. Thursday's headline about the elegant spacing of penguin colonies was math of the penguins. <laughs> Today's headline comes from me, David. It's Ooh. not even a real headline yet. I'm just, I'm pre-writing. Oh, okay. God, I better get this one then. Did you see Tiger Woods playing golf with his son, Charlie, this weekend? No, I totally missed this. Playing golf with his son, Charlie, as you might imagine, Charlie is a fantastic golfer inherited some of dad's genes as you know we're already talking wow he does stuff that i didn't even do at that age let's imagine that charlie woods goes on to the pga tour at some point and his relationship with tiger is not quite like tiger and earl woods but you know you have a dad who's a the alta the greatest golfer of all time okay that carries with it some a little bit of a complication a burden perhaps and let's say you were writing a story about that what would be Brian's strained pun headline? Well, is it the, are you, are you going for like the battle hymn of the tiger father or something like that? The <laughs> yeah, tiger, that's <laughs> right where I was going. Tiger dad. Yeah. yeah. We, we uh, would have also yeah. accepted boy meets Earl. <laughs> boy meets Earl. Just as a little bit of a, uh, a tweet. Maybe I was talking to Michael Sala, but a greatest headline writer of all time about this. He said, you know, I think that would be like the caption that leads into the photos. Like what? the bold oh, caption, oh, the, colon. Boy meets yeah. Earl? Boy, boy meets Earl, yeah. He <laughs> oh is David Shoemaker. So Upright Curtis Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. We're going to take a deep breath here at the Press Box, but we're back Monday, December 28th, to do some year in media plus Jesse Washington of The Undefeated. And, of course, David, more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then. See you later, Brian. <laughs>